Hello, and welcome to the Brighton Parkcast. I'm your host, James LaPlane. Today's episode is the conclusion of our strategic planning discussion with Sarah Greer and Adrian Perrier, co-founders of Shared Vision Limited. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I strongly encourage you to do so to have the context for the rest of our discussion. In this discussion, Sarah and Adrian will provide more details about the three conversations that take place during a session, starting with outcomes, then values, and finally talking about capabilities. We'll also discuss the importance of active coaching during the session, how companies always underestimate the amount of effort an initiative will take, and why Adrian and Sarah have chosen to train others in their methods rather than building another management consulting company. Thanks for listening, and now let's get back to the discussion with Adrian and Sarah. Let's recap a bit what we covered, because I think it's really interesting when you look at it in sequence. We started off with a focus question. You conducted interviews to figure out how to run the session. Those are completed. We've got our ideal environment, hopefully physically together. I think there's real power in that, right? We've got our half circle near the wall. The participants are not distracted. So there's no phones or laptops or competing priorities. We've got our designer and facilitator and a producer. And now we're actually going to begin the session. And this also has a really interesting framework, which you call the three conversations. And it begins with what you call the outcomes. And Adrian, we'll use the time traveling analogy here. You travel forward here and you start and work in reverse. Can you talk about the outcomes conversation? Never start where you are. You won't get anywhere. <laughs> You're already there, actually. Yeah, <laughs> Outcome-based thinking, I think it gets more and more important. Yeah. I think the way we think about products, the way we think about organizations is changing. And if you're not starting by saying, what's our purpose? What do we actually want to create? What's the impact? What's the value of us existing in the future? Then you're going to get more of the same, an incremental change. You're going to get marginal improvements. You're never going to get breakthrough innovation. You're never going to get transformation, repositioning. So we always start by saying, what do you want to become? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? And then, and only then, would you say, okay, where are we now? Or what's the history? And how do we get to where we are? So you start with the future, come back to the past and the present, and then go back to the future in terms of maybe enriching, building a stronger shared vision, a North Star, so people can navigate. And then the how, the what are we going to do? And one of the interesting elements of this is where you ask people to give you sound bites or quotes from what they hope is either their customer base or their executives, whatever the focus question is really centered things on. Can you describe that a little bit? We've been asking people to think deeply with empathy about their key stakeholders and tell us what they want to hear them saying in the future for a number of years, for more than a decade. It works really well. It makes people get outside themselves, put themselves in someone else's shoes and say, I really want you to be doing this for me. And that could be also done in a, we ask people, what do you want your competitors to be saying about (laughs) you? That's fair. Again, it's sharpening up that view of the future of what success looks like with a way of making it very personal, very real, And those quotes, when Sarah's put them across the top of the shared vision, they orientate people. People say, okay, that's that's what we're shooting for. Yeah. Think of the symbolism, right? That's captured in that visual visual aspect. Right. And again, it aligns people on 
things like who are the stakeholders in their mm-hmm. organization today, but also in three years or five years. Yeah. It just gets people thinking outside the box a little bit. A lot. <laughs> a lot, right? Yeah. A lot. So that's one conversation. The next conversation centers around values, right? What do they want to be doing during their working lives? What do they stand for, right? These principles. Can you talk a little bit more about that? We think being clear how you want to live, what behaviors you expect is critical. Critical for any health organization. You need to work on that. Now, you're one of the people whose sessions we remember because you had a high-performing team. You had a very good team. Yeah. And maybe they're early in their lives. Maybe they're early coming together, but they're still all, they're superstars. Yeah. So for your team, we would say to people, tell us what the values are, but be prepared to give us a paradox, give us attention. Because it really raises the bar of people saying, we want to live like this, and we recognize there's a consequence to everything, and there's a balance, and we have to sort of hold that tension. So having that conversation, taking stock at least once a year, saying, how do we want to live? How do we want to behave with each other? We think it's fundamental. I'm so glad you mentioned paradoxes. You know my passion for this tension, right? You know, I use the analogy of music here as well. What we like about music is resolution. And so we actually need the tension first for the chord to resolve, which you almost anticipate, right, as a listener. The same is true in this kind of conversation where we say, look, we want to go fast, fail fast, but we also want to get to success. Well, how do those two things exist together? Well, they have to, and you have to draw the best parts from each. And so I think the framing that you just gave us there is interesting. So you start with outcomes about what we want to do. And then you really move into how we want to operate before you've even gotten to the things that need to be executed, right? This is a very intentional stepwise process. It is. And then, and only then would we say, so what do you need? What are the capabilities? Yeah. What needs to be true to realize that the top of this. Yeah. So this is the the third conversation. The third conversation. Yeah. Could be capabilities, could be operating model, could be positioning. They know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The goal of this conversation is to drive alignment again. Are we back alignment. to the alignment conversation? 100% alignment. Yeah. yeah. And we've gotten like, I think in the early days, we would try to be fairly precise and let's build it and let's mm-hmm. have it be pretty immediately. Yeah. And now, James, we're like, okay, we're going to just rough this out. We'll let people vote. We'll give people yep. a red pen and you know, dot or show of hands. What are some of the most important? On, on Monday, we built the shared vision, these three conversations. It took 24 minutes. There were 40 people in the session. Wow. The rough outline that Sarah talked about was more than good enough. Yeah. The next day, they came back and they defined that rough outline for seven hours in yeah. great detail. And we've learned to let people do the rough work, use their gut bring everything to that, pause, now reflect and build it out carefully. And it always works. Humans are very good (laughs) Mm -hmm. at giving you the essence if you set it up well and then unpacking it and carefully thinking about it. I love that phrase. I'll use your words back to you because you just said part of it. It really is about capturing the essence, not the precision, right? That's your words. Yes. This isn't a an analytical, scientific... <laughs> right. Worksmithy, no. <laughs> no. no. Tell us what the big platform 
is? Yeah. What are the layers that must be in place? What are the yeah. fundamental right. strengths? And it, and it helps that that is the visual. It is a platform that we're putting them on and they're weighted, right? So, yeah. so it feels like they can see these are the things, these are the building blocks that it will take to realize this future. It's a platform, it's a layer, yeah. okay? Sarah can add layers. It's weighted. I mean, it feels weighty. It, it's not floating on the wall. It is anchored <laughs> by design. Well, well, if done correctly, these three conversations provide a lot of guidance about the team's focus, their priorities, the way they want to operate, but maybe less obvious. And what I love is that defines how to be fulfilled from the work that they do. Yes. There's got to be significant meaning. We say to people, are we going to get out of bed on the hard days for the next right. five years for this? That's right. Is it worth yeah. it? Such yeah. an important question. And often one that's skipped. Can you tell me you got this t-shirt moment idea, which happens on occasion. Can you describe what a t-shirt moment is? This is Sarah's brilliant idea. <laughs> right. So oftentimes in the very center around the values which may be described as these paradoxical yep. words, I will leave a space. And in that space is, so this is your t-shirt. What's going to go on the t-shirt? And then the group gets to decide. It's visual. This week, Sarah drew something that she made up listening to them. And every single person who saw it realized that's it. And it was enormous what she'd drawn. It was incredibly significant. It had a worldwide impact for this team and they're a worldwide <laughs> organization. And they looked at it and they went, that's, that's, that's us. us. That's yeah. us. That's yeah. the essence of us in a visual. Right. Yeah. And you know, that's the t-shirt that's their, yeah. their brand. Yeah. There's nothing more powerful than somebody feeling like they've been seen. And I feel like what you're describing is doing that for the group, right? The team collective. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't have drawn that without the session. I, I couldn't right. have drawn it. How would you it have the context? Yeah. I was until we were in the session live. Yeah. It'd be interesting if you, not that you would ever do this because it would be detrimental, but before you began these conversations, if you said, give us your t-shirt slogan and then compared it to what you discover, right. they're right. never going to match, right? Or they would never match. Probably not. No. <laughs> Most likely not. Yeah. <laughs> so when you've done these three conversations, there's a practice, Adrian, that I'd love for you to walk us through that you call the wall walk. Because what you do somehow, I don't know if I have this ability, so I'm in awe of it. Here's my awe moment, Sarah. <laughs> you describe the three conversations in a summary, and the narrative may be in different contextual order or sequential order than what it was talked about, right? And so can you describe how powerful this is? It's storytelling. And we've learned to often film it. Because <laughs> trying to do it the second time, it's never as good. Never as good, yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking at it, and I'm telling a story representing the stakeholders yeah starting so in the future and then figuring out which are the most important stakeholders and what they said what's the essence of what's on the wall not yeah. reading every word but again boiling it down getting to the power then articulating the values of how we want to live as you said how do people want to be fulfilled how is this nourishing and important in their lives? And then in order to do that, 
this is what needs to be in place. And that's the tension. That's really fascinating. Well, I've written down some phrases that you've used to describe yourselves in these roles or some of your practice. And I'd love to call some of these out and you just give me one, your reaction to them and also maybe a little bit of an explanation. Does that sound kind of fun? Mm-hmm. All right. You've called yourself anthropologists. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. We use that to do the history panel and to understand what's going on for each part of the teams we're engaged with. Yeah, it's a deep dive into that organization. Advanced empathy, Mm -hmm. field research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And we talked a little bit about the neutral force already. You've said that neutrality is one of the most useful assets. Can you expand on that? We don't. We're guests in their house, James. We live with the family that we leave. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. It's a real responsibility though, right? Not just to be neutral, but to carry that weight of neutrality into an environment that's probably already preloaded with expectation. And be respectful of confidences because people will, Sarah said, they'll expose, they'll become vulnerable. You've got to be very careful. Right. We are, we are Switzerland and we (laughs) would always kind of say that, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, coaching is a big part of your approach as well. And I think it's a differentiator, frankly, from what I've seen in other strategy sessions. A lot of the time that people in that room are in pretty powerful positions, right? They've got a lot of experiences. They've been in industry a long time, and maybe they're not open to being coached. So how do you coach during these sessions? That's a great question. You do it all the time. Yeah, but how? I think we (laughs) assume that we have to model that's um, first. Yeah. That's reflective, the first part, right? Reflective. We love being stretched by the sessions mm-hmm. and we enjoy it. So yeah. we're very open if we're learning things. Mm-hmm. And we live help people sometimes by putting context or exposing underpinning theory. I will draw piece of theory if it's useful in a nanosecond you've seen me do this i would expose i'll say hey this is how so and so thinks about this this is helpful and in that spirit of we're learning we're co-creating i think the coaching emerges we want everyone to leave feeling they're a stronger slightly wiser slightly better leader and if it's a situation you have one rule in some of our sessions that more like the advisory board sessions. And the one rule is if you feel my hand on your shoulder, stop talking. Yeah. And guess what? It's not to shame you or make you feel bad. It's because it's time for the clients to talk. Or the other day I tapped a CEO. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because he wasn't listening. It's time to just, now it's time to listen. listen. Pause and listen. Listen Listen to what they're saying. Or don't try to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's a good one, right? We watch leader after leader fall on their sword of answering a question. And I'm often going, stop. Ask them what they mean. Clarify. You don't know the answer. (laughs) Give them an answer. Don't take the bait. So fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that you've brought up several times in our conversation today is around empathy. Can you teach empathy? Yes. Mm-hmm. You can practice can. it. Absolutely. Teach children empathy. Yes. They have it naturally. We used to do empathy, empathy mapping. Yep. Empathy mapping, empathy drills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah we yep. draw it. Mm-hmm. You can probably pretty quickly tell when a lack of empathy is present in a group. And do you tackle that 
pretty directly when that happens? We build it into the framework. We've used the framework, like the stakeholders on the vision, to force them to engage with empathy. In some cases, I bet this is the first time someone has so directly challenged them on what that empathy level ought to be. And if they're at war, if they're fighting factions, we might deliberately get each to advocate the other's position to yeah. stop that process. Fascinating. Change their perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another conversation we will sometimes add, which might be a result of some of that good work is, what are your working principles going to be moving forward? Yeah. So if they've explored each other's work, if they have had the really good and the really tough conversations and are ready to sort of bridge to the next level that principal conversations can be so powerful. I think we did that with James. You yeah. took the values. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. You mentioned storytelling multiple times throughout this dialogue, but I think it's more than that because in many ways, your story creators, right, are more aptly maybe co-creators. So I guess, you know, when you replay this material, you did the wall walk, right? That's an aspect or an element of storytelling. How do the folks in that room do the same thing back to their organizations. Is that part of the discussions that you ultimately have? Yeah, we teach them. We teach yeah. storytelling because... It's the key. Without it, they can't relay mm-hmm. the great information that in the, the work that's happened in that room. It's kind of a lost art, really. I thought maybe we could talk about the technology balance sheet because mm-hmm. so much of your work probably is hinges mm-hmm. on technology. Yeah. And then we could roll into maybe the end of it around the toolkit that you're building, right? So now okay. we've talked about the session, but now you're actually doing something more interesting, which is how do we make other people run this practice themselves? Exactly, right. Yeah, perfect. Cannibalizing ourselves. In some way, no question. <laughs> Trying, yeah, somebody said, can you guys clone yourselves? No, okay, yeah. well, how about this? <laughs> There's one more quote that I wanted to ask you about, which is your words, we seek to become experts at sharing bad news. What does that convey? A decade of helping people talk about technical debt. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Sometimes people need to disclose stuff safely and have it land. And there are some conversations organizations find too hard. They just Mm -hmm. avoid them. So often we do sessions where we're helping people talk about something they should have been talking about years ago. And therefore, designing those so they can pull back the cover, bring it out, talk about it. That's a key part of our work sometimes. Yeah. It sounds like therapy, Adrian. Well, it's organizational level. It's it's definitely beyond family therapy. It's where I started. I started in the British coal industry after the strike with the unions and the managers talking about the operating model. The strike had been lost. They had to work it out. And then I found with oil and gas exploration production, same issues. Yeah. People not being able to talk to each other yeah. about the hard things. And maybe that's a pattern. People get stuck. It came up in the very beginning of our conversation. I think Sarah mentioned there's this crosstalk, right? They're not actually talking mm-hmm. with each other. They're talking past each other. And there are taboos that we yes. try and surface and make safe mm-hmm. so they can be named talked about the elephant in the room. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the technology balance sheet, which I love that symbolism as well. You know, my guess is that even though you work with many companies in different industries, the technology still tends to be at the core of a lot of your dialogues just because of how prominent it ultimately is. So 
most enterprises don't understand the assets they have and the debts that they ultimately carry, right? So how does this get surfaced in your dialogue? It's such an important point. It's a part of everyone's operating model now. It's critical. We come from that technology company background. So I think it's easy for us to ask people in the interviews a set of questions that are going to make them uncomfortable about debt, about confidence and data, about how well they're set up. And you've worked on what we think of as the high clock speed leading end of the technology sectors for years. So you know a lot of what good looks like. For many organizations, they've made some bad decisions and they are looking for a way forward. And there is no pixie dust. There's no silver bullet. So talking that through, being able to visualize that, being able to take stock, creating that balance sheet is sometimes the most important of the conversations we do. And they know what needs to be surfaced. They know what their assets are. They know what their debts are, but they've never seen them on the wall on the same time. So we literally build a big, rich picture and let them take stock. And then the question, so what are you going to do? Do you think we overuse the term technical debt? And I'll give you a little more context around that question. You know, debt as a financial vehicle is a very useful tool. Sometimes it's appropriate to leverage debt. But in technology, we treat it a bit more binary, which is all technical debt is bad. And maybe I'm speaking as a technologist here. We use this as a little bit of a stick, right? I can't pay down my technical debt. And so I'm frustrated. But isn't some technical debt fine to carry? We would say all technical debts probably starts off as very good. For sure. Because you've made a decision that it's done enough to use, but you've not done it perfectly. Well, who does anything perfectly? Now, the (laughs) key is, did you write that down? Or did you hide that? And are you going to leave, leaving a ticking bomb? So there's technical debt that's known. There's technical debt that's overdue. There's technical debt that's too big, that's become unbalanced. We talked to somebody this week who has a mainframe, and they're hoping AI can understand the code because no one else can. The people who wrote it are long dead. Wow. And it's running some of the most important critical infrastructure in the world. We all rely on it. I won't embarrass them by naming the industry. Yeah. You can guess. <laughs> Please, <yeah. laughs> so wow. what do they do? They, they have to talk about this. N- nowadays, we're in the era of generative AI, LLMs. That's like wonderful. And also like the worst high interest credit card you could start using. <laughs> so sure. use it, but know what you're doing. I'm going to leave that live wire alone for now. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that came to mind as I was thinking about our conversation in prep for today is, I don't know if you're familiar with Melvin Kranzberg. He created these six laws of technology in the 50s, so almost 70 years ago, but they still kind of apply today. And so I just want to call it a couple of these because I think they're really interesting. The fourth law is technology is critical to many policy decisions, but non-technical issues are given more importance. I bet you see that in almost every conversation that you ultimately have. All the time. Mm -hmm. The fifth law is all history is relevant, but the history of technology is the most relevant, meaning technology is really entangled in literally everything we do, which we've just been talking about. That's so true. Mm -hmm. It's so important. Mm -hmm. I mean, our history panels Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the way we surface 
decisions around technology mm-hmm. is going to get more and more important for people, we think, in the next five years. I would agree with that. The sixth law embodies so much of what your approach captures as well. Technology is a very human activity. And so the history of technology is the history of humans. 100%. It is. Yeah. It's really the story, if we can go back to storytelling, of man and tool, right? And the combination of the two. It's really interesting. Well, perfect. Let's talk about what goes wrong. Sometimes these conversations go a little bit sideways. Do you have some memorable examples or maybe some categories of places, just as guidance maybe for folks that are thinking about how they can do better at this type of planning? We can remember people getting so angry, we had to call timeout. Wow. Angry at the ideas? At angry each with other? each other. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't get there now. We found that we can spot that and diffuse it. Mm-hmm. So if people are angry, we think you've got to walk towards them, got to yeah. deal with it. And right. in those early days, we would be a little less confident and then you can see the meeting breaking. That's one. The other, the most important, is never, ever accept a focus question unless the sponsor, the person with power, has approved it. We had a session where we started the session. The sponsor wasn't there. They changed the focus question. The sponsor came in, looked at the wall, turned to me and said, who gave you permission to solve world peace? Not a great day. (laughs) Wow. So know know what your contract is with your sponsor. Know what your focus question is. What's your scope? Yeah. Deal with anger directly and never, ever Mm pre-build any aspect of the vision Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it'll be wrong. Right. We've proved that. Right. And, (laughs) you know, back in the old days, James, we would, you know, I would have my layer of graph paper on the wall and mostly just use that as the paper I would draw on. But gradually over the years, we've really turned to just making everything super modular. And layers. 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 We can we yeah. can move stuff around. We can, that's not working. Let's, okay, plan B, plan C. So not sort of big air quotes here, painting <laughs> ourselves into the corner of yeah. like, oh, well, we're, this is exactly how it's got to go now. So we are so modular now that if given a choice, even if we're really confident, We'll build it in modules, just in case. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the future optimist problem? I'll give you maybe a little bit of context with a quote. Your words, by the way, people working in technology are often future oh. optimists and can tend to believe things will get better over time. Oh, it's worse than that. <laughs> massively overestimate what they'll achieve by next year. Yeah. And that's Bill Gates said it brilliantly. So that in 12 months time, in 18 months time, we will walk on water. And they're wrong. But in five months' time, everyone's <laughs> flying. Right. And they missed that as well. So <laughs> they've completely got the wrong view of the future. You're, yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. And this comes up all the time, right? As you start to you know think about this story and this arc, and then what they're going to have to do next, well, they're either over or underestimating the work that's ultimately involved. And people look at us when we say, we're going to do a five-year strategic outcome session. Yeah. And they say... We don't do five years. Can we bring it back? We did 10 years this week. We did. And wow. the people said, we never do this. We always are stuck on the roadmap, the now, the next. 
and you forced us to go further out. Yeah. yeah. So you know this. If you have a three-year horizon and a, or a one-year horizon or 18 months, you're in trouble. I just spoke with JJ Allaire. He's the CEO and founder of Posit, which is our studio folks. And, you know, I was surprised to learn that, you know, he's got a corporate benefit company structure for Posit. And his vision is a durable company that lasts 100 years. And one of the questions I asked him was, man, you know, folks are not good even at quarterly planning. How are you thinking about planning for 100 years out? It's a fascinating problem to try to tackle. That's great. It's great to hear that. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot maybe to the last topic here, which is you've just walked us through this really rich practice that you've developed and obviously really, really powerful. And now you've made a decision that I find really unusual. I'd love to talk about it. You've decided to put into practice into a toolkit and a course for others to learn what it is that you do. Can you tell me why? Like, why are you giving away the secret sauce here? That's a great question. It (laughs) is. Well, I'll start by saying this came during COVID. And because we had all of these folks that we were working with virtually and trying to figure out how are we going to run these meetings and run summits and run client advisory boards, we found ourselves sort of having to explain ourselves. Why are we doing this? Hence writing a lot of this stuff down. And that just started to grow and grow and flourish. And it wasn't too long after a couple of, you know, we wrote down the vision first and we're like, you know what? Everybody needs to know how to do this. That was sort of our first big piece of work that we wrote down and figured out from each role, you know, how are we going to, how can we teach how to build a vision and I know for me, it, it felt like this is really good and important work and it, because it works. It solves a lot of problems. And I don't want to leave this earth without hopefully getting a lot of other organizations on board, whether, you know, it could be education, could be politics, you know, healthcare, you name it. I mean, there are, we've got some mad, wicked problems <laughs> out there in the world that need solved. And it feels like people can use this methodology to solve those problems and have conversations about them. And you brought up coaching. So we've been in the capability transfer business for years. Happy to do that. Happy to explain, to teach, to reflect. And we started to do sessions where we did a plus one. We stayed an extra day and used what we built as a training environment. And now we've sort of built that in. So we're doing a series of customer advisory boards and technical advisory boards three weeks' time. At the end of that, they've got thousands of their customers there. It's a conference. But at the end of that, the 20 product managers are going to stay And we're going to work with them about how they engage with their customers using our approach so that a year from now, we won't be doing their technical advisory board. They will. We're cannibalizing ourselves quite deliberately. We'd rather they did it. We think it will make them better product managers. It'll make the company stronger. It's the right thing to do. It's a very altruistic take that you have on this. I love it. Well, we don't want to build another management consultancy practice. Right. We've done that. We'd rather give people the capability and the capacity for them to do more of it themselves. There's often meetings that people need to have where they shouldn't have a third party in the room. Even if you say, well, they're neutral. Sometimes people simply need to have private 
conversations with each other. And lots of organizations would benefit if they could design and facilitate and deliver that for themselves. Well, and like you said earlier, that shared vision conversation, it should be an annual occurrence. For every leadership For every leadership team. Yeah, if you're not doing it, if the absence is already there, right? That's pretty telling. Mm -hmm. Just stop. Once a year, stop. Pause. Why are we here? Why do we exist? What does the world need from us? How do we articulate that to everybody so that there isn't any doubt what the mission is? Otherwise, people will fall into their bureaucratic silos and do their bit and miss the bigger purpose. What's in the toolkit? Can you give us just an overview of the material? Yeah, there's templates for a session. There's learning journeys for the roles. Success profiles. The success profiles. There's guidance on how to build a practice, to handle all the problems, all the hard things we've discovered. There's lots and lots of videos mm-hmm. and more and more podcasts. Sarah and I talking and reflecting. Yeah. We now spend 20% of each week reflecting, sharing, mm-hmm. building material. And we want this to become a community. So we're going to end up hopefully being responsive to what people want. But we think we built enough pathways, building blocks, approaches, so that people can start doing the most important thing, which is action learning, doing it, reflecting, progressing. There's the academic approach that you've captured. But the other piece of this, of course, is the experiential component, right? They have to put it into practice to get better at it. They have to. And we built our work with retrospectives, after action reviews. Every single time we work, we pause. What did we learn? What went well? What could we improve? We do it now, usually with the participants at the end of a session. Yeah, We just great. do one on a, on a wall quickly. And then we continue doing it. And you're right. People need to get into that learning pattern and stay in it. It's incredible work. I love talking to the two of you about this. I hope that's very evident here. There's so much energy and passion for the work that you do. You've highlighted so many important things, but one of them is just setting aside the right time and resources and finding the right approach to strategic planning. I think that needs to be much more intentional. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this shared vision, the model that you've developed, and congratulations on launching this toolkit. I can't wait to hear how others adopt this and what they do next. Thank you, James. Great to talk with you. Pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. That concludes our two-part discussion on strategic planning. I wanted to take just a moment to highlight a few takeaways I had from this episode. First, I loved Adrian's advice to never start the planning session from where you are, because as he said, you won't get anywhere. Starting the conversation with outcomes allows the team to time travel forward to what they envision as success. A critical element here is to put voice to what success would look like to their stakeholders or customers. Second, using a shoulder tap to signal to a leader or even to each other that they need to pause and actively listen to what is being said is powerful. We all get caught up in what we think others are saying, leaping to a conclusion that may actually be counter to the underlying message. When we fall into this trap, our attention shifts away from the present speaker and we miss the crucial bits of the narrative. And third, the reminder that technical debt, like financial debt, can be a useful vehicle to leverage. Technologists often talk about technical debt as if it's a binary decision, when in fact there are different types of technical debt, some of which are perfectly acceptable to leave in place and instead concentrate your efforts on bringing new features to the market. I hope you enjoyed both parts of these conversations as much as I did. Thanks for listening.